The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. German artillery. Seems Franco and his fascists are getting some help. Well, they have to test their weapons somewhere. Spain's the only place available. For now. Means a bigger war is coming. Hitler knows there's nothing like a good war to pick up an economy. Especially if you win and get the loser to pay for it. Nobody wins. You know that cage. People making the money do. You know what I see when I look out on this place? Opportunity. I have to excuse my friend. He likes to make believe he's a capitalist. I live to exploit the masses. I keep trying to tell him he is the masses. Do you ever notice how easy it is for a rich kid to be a socialist? <laughs> Always go to sleep. What to do tomorrow. In the morning we take the bridge at Del Marino. And in the afternoon you guys can write about us for your newspapers. All we have to do is hold back the nationalists until the international brigade pushes around Franco's back. <laughs> we'll kick the little fascist's ass all the way to the Mediterranean. We'll see. You gotta think positive. See you at the bridge. Foolish kids. They'll be dead in a week. Morning London. It is Thursday, May 29th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be and welcome to the show today where our entire theme will be devoted to part two of what I started last week, and that is the whole concept of envirofascism, and you'll, you'll understand why I'm talking about that today. Deniers versus believers, what's it all about? I'm going to get into a little bit detail today. 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you have an opinion on this subject or want to join in in a discussion. Or email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. And if you want to see or hear all the archived copies of all the past shows of Just Right, you can go to justrightmedia.org, where you'll see all the information I just gave you right up there on the screen. So welcome to the show today. Last week, I guess I, I warned you, I was just getting started today. I guess I'm getting on a roll on the issue of uh, the whole environmental thing that's going on all around us. You can't pick up a newspaper without uh, every issue being tainted, and I say tainted, by the whole environmental issue. Now, in order for us to understand how and why political events manifest themselves the way they do, you can't even get off the starting line unless you're critically aware of the appropriate definitions that relate to various political and economic systems. You know, the, the type that are enforced by and or protected by governments. That would be freedom, capitalism, liberalism, conservatism, socialism, communism, fascism, and environmentalism. And if you don't know what these words actually mean, 
not just what people say they mean, because there is a difference. Then you haven't got a hope of understanding anything about around, you know, the political world around you. And this study, of course, belongs to the realm of epistemology, or basically the study of knowledge and how we acquire objective facts of reality. Now, I've talked a lot about this on the show before. Of course, the reason we even have words, after all, is to distinguish one thing from another, isn't it? If there's similarities between different identities, then those are not, uh, you know, the distinguishing characteristics of the word or term being used to tell one from another. For example, uh, the fact that both tables and dogs have four legs would not be the reason we need two different words, dog and table, to know which of those two identities someone would be talking about, because both of them do have four legs. So the distinguishing characteristic is obviously something else, and this is the same principle we have to apply to politics, where unfortunately it's not as simple as identifying physical objects in nature, because in politics we deal with abstractions with ideas, with concepts, and they also have critical identities and distinguishing characteristics from one another. And even though all ideas are abstractions, and this is unimportant in the sense that you can't see, feel, hear, or touch an, an idea, it's vitally important to remember that some ideas are real while other ideas are unreal. In other words, some thought patterns correspond to reality, others do not. And of course what we think how we think, all that determines our course of action and ultimately the course of history. And history, unfortunately, is a recording mostly, I think, of all the disasters wrought upon humanity by incorrect thinking, irrespective of the motives behind it or the moods or the intentions, good or bad will of the people who set certain ideas into motion. You know, all actions have a determined consequence, which is not predetermined, which is a mystical concept, something different, but a scientifically determined consequence that never, never changes regardless how many variants of the action one might attempt. Uh, you know, for example, really simple. If I drop a ball, it will always invariably fall to the ground, regardless of whether I drop it from 10 feet, 2 feet, 5 miles up, or whatever. But bear in mind that even though this consequence is invariable, that is, that the ball, the ball will drop. However, the ball never bounces twice in exactly the same way. And I understand the odds of such an occurrence approach almost infinity, because it would never be possible to measure initial conditions and a host of other variables that physicists usually like to, you know, confound themselves with. Now, how all this re relates back to ideas is this way. If we confuse one concept with another, attributing to it like false properties that don't correspond to practice and reality, then whatever actions we take based on those ideas and expectations, even though our intentions might be good, will have an unintended and usually undesirable consequence. But in politics, to confuse matters even more, and this is what hurts, there are those who do indeed intend the negative consequences associated with their ideas and actions, because they're motivated by unreal ideas with power over others and a host of other subjective diseases that I think poison our political environment throughout history. And these people generally use the good intentioned and those who don't know very much about issues, who are often called the ignorant, uh, to further their, you know, their unholy causes, as I would call them. If there's anything that this show is about, uh, you know, it's called Just Right, it's to make clear that ideas do matter and that the labeling of ideas uh, as left, right, center, or capitalist, socialist, communist, fascist, whatever, has only confused matters because people 
so often keep insisting on placing the wrong label on the wrong product. And with that in mind, I've actually found a very current book that appears to be completely consistent with what I've been saying about the political spectrum on this show since we started last year. And specifically what I've been saying about how both, both the so-called right-wing and left-wing are really left and not right. Uh, socialism, communism, fascism, they're all the same thing, really. Uh, liberals and conservatives are essentially the same thing, capital L, capital C. And environmentalism, as it is presented to us today, is an explicitly fascist movement. Explicitly so. There's just no... If you have any doubt about it, I don't know why that doubt would be there. But this book is not about environmentalism per se, but about fascism. And later in the show, I will be taking uh, environmentalism, talking environmentalism, rather, and you'll be hearing, uh, again, some more clips from David Suzuki and uh, Al Gore himself, believe it or not, as well as from John Stossel. So if you want to stick around for that, it's a lot of fun. Now, this is from the book, Liberal Fascism, by Johann Goldberg, Doubleday Press. And um, it's out there now, and he, he says, Everything you know about fascism is wrong. And his current book, I guess you could get it down at the local chapters or your favorite bookstore or in town or online, wherever. It's very current. just came out at the end of last year. And uh, Mr. Goldberg is a columnist with the L.A. Times, writes for the National Review, US, USA Today, Times of London, New Yorker, Commentary, Wall Street Journal, etc. And now on this show, of course, we've dealt a lot with labels and political systems. Uh, you want to check it out on justrightmedia.org. You can go back to our August 9th show where we talked about what's wrong with socialism. August 30th, gave a whole show on why Hitler was a socialist. September 6th, we dealt with fascism. And I, you'll have to look for the heading, Fascism and Frogs, on that one. And, of course, we've talked a lot about reorienting uh, left and right itself. I did that on the first show, did it again November 8th, and again in a roundabout way with Jim Chapman and Jeff Schlemmer a couple of weeks ago on our Left, Right, and Center reunion. And I think that was kind of a revealing conversation, which I really haven't had time to analyze yet, but will uh, perhaps refer to in the future. But most people, notes author Goldberg, uh, have, have some idea of what fascism is only by its symptoms and not by the nature of the disease of fascism. And although he doesn't use the term, I would add the word social disease. It seems particularly apt here. He cites the words, you know, dictatorship, genocide, anti-Semitism, eugenics, social Darwinism, state capitalism, rule of big business, racism, and most incorrectly, right-wing. Fascism, explains Goldberg, properly understood, is not a phenomenon of the right at all. Instead, it is, and always has been, a phenomenon of the left. This fact, an inconvenient truth, if ever there was one, is obscured in our time by the equally mistaken belief that fascism and communism are opposites. In reality, they are closely related historical competitors for the same constituents, seeking to dominate and control the same social space. Basically, they're after the same target market, the same kind of people. But in terms of their theory and practices, their differences are really minimal. And says uh, Goldberg, since we must have a working definition of fascism, here is mine. And this is his definition. Now, it's not mine particularly, but it's consistent uh, with my understanding of fascism as well. And he says, fascism is a religion of the state. It is totalitarian in that it views everything as political and holds that any action by the state is justified to achieve the common good. 
It takes responsibility for all aspects of life, including our health and well-being, and seeks to impose uniformity of thought and of action, whether by force or through regulation and social pressure. Now, Ayn Rand, of course, she uh, she said she said from her point of view, the differences between socialism and fascism is very superficial, and it's very just a formal a formality. But she says it's very significant psychologically because it brings the authoritarian nature of a planned economy right out into the open. That's what she sees as the value of a defining difference between the two. Because under fascism, citizens retain the responsibilities of owning property without the freedom to act and without any of the advantages of ownership. And uh, under socialism, governments, government officials acquire all the advantages of ownership without any of the responsibilities since they don't hold title to the property, but merely the right to use it. So how I used to express this in the past, really fascism was, uh, and socialism really look at property different. One leaves property in the name of the person who's owning or occupying it, the other one owns it by the state, which really means nobody, of course. And essentially, beyond that, they're, they're the same. In either case, the government officials hold the economic, political, and legal power of life or death over the citizens. Under both systems, says Rand, sacrifice is the solution to any crisis, and the public good is the altar on which the victims are immolated. But there are stylistic differences of emphasis, she says. And this is interesting. Apply this to the issues you know today. The socialist-communist axis keeps promising to achieve abundance, material comfort and security for its victims in some indeterminate future. You hear this every day of the week on our health care system, education. We're going to fix it. It'll get better. Sometime in the future, you'll actually be able to go in the hospital and be attended to right away. You know, it's always a promise, but it never happens. Whereas the fascist axis scorns material comfort and security entirely and keeps extolling some undefined sort of spiritual duty, service, and conquest, which we heard David Suzuki going on about last week here on the show. Now, interestingly, I looked up the generic definition in my Funk and Wagnalls dictionary and, and what it said about fascism, and it said, it's a one-party system of government in which the individual is subordinated to the state and control is maintained by military force, secret police, rigid censorship, and governmental regimentation of industry and finance. Now, I think this definition could also be for communism, and I also think, or be part of the communist definition, not, not of course, distinguish it, and not necessarily, I don't think you have to have a one-party fascist philosophy, I think you just have to have one philosophy available. I understand in Iran they have two conservative parties that people can vote for, so is, is that democracy? Uh, I'm not too sure. And uh, you don't have to have rigid censorship necessarily, but you could have loose censorship and a lot of consistent propaganda. That would be a symbol as well. Now, just look at the other one from Funk and Wagnall's communism. Interesting how they, they, they kind of position it differently. A social system. You know, no government involved here. They don't mention the word government except in one place. Characterized by the communal sharing of goods and services, public ownership, no, no, the public not doesn't own it, it's the government. That should say government ownership of almost all productive property and the sharing of the products of labor. Now, sharing is a voluntary action, of course, and we're not talking about any voluntary actions here. So that definition is not only incorrect, but entirely misleading to anyone. And it says a social system, which it is not. It's a state system. And it is, in other, every other respect, the same as the one we just read about fascism. Now, just one last thing about 
fascism. You know, people always say, well, it can't happen here. And this is one of the things that Johann Goldberg wanted to prove quite incorrect. He says that not only, you, you can't say that, but it already has happened here. He says it's simply a fact that in the 1920s, fascism and fascistic, fascistic ideas were very popular on the American left. And later he points out how Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal was fundamentally fascistic, with FDR's defenders openly admitting their admiration of fascism. And it is my argument, states Goldberg, that during World War I, America became a fascist country, though temporarily. The first appearance of modern totalitarianism in the Western world was not Italy or Germany, but the United States of America. And I know you're all thinking, well, what is he talking about? Because you don't hear about this stuff too often. And he writes, and this is uh, Goldberg writing, quote, Nothing that happened under the mad reign of Joe McCarthy remotely compares with what Woodrow Wilson and his fellow progressives foisted on America. Under the Espionage, Espionage Act of uh, June 1917 and the Sedition Act of May 1918, any criticism of the government, even in your own home, could earn you a prison sentence in the United States of America. The Justice Department created its own quasi-official fascisti, known as the American Protective League, or the APL. They were given badges and charged with keeping an eye on their neighbors and co-workers and their friends. Members were bound by oath not to reveal that they were secret policemen. And vigilantism was often encouraged and rarely, dis rarely dissuaded. This was the America Woodrow Wilson and his allies sought, and they got what they wanted. In 1919... At a victory loan pageant, a man refused to stand for the national anthem. When the Star-Spangled Banner ended, a furious sailor shot the, quote, disloyal, disloyal, quote, end quote, man three times in the back. When the man fell, the Washington Post reported, the crowd burst into cheering and hand-clapping. Another man who refused to rise for the national anthem at a baseball game was beaten by the fans in the bleachers. In February 1919, a jury in Hammond, Indiana, in Indiana, took two minutes to acquit a man who had murdered an immigrant for yelling, quote, to hell with the United States, end quote. In 1920, a salesman at a clothing store in Waterbury, Connecticut, received a six-month prison sentence for referring to Lenin as, quote, one of the brainiest leaders in the world, end quote. And on and on and on, the book goes with examples. Just horrible. And, and you realize under McCarthy, remember, no one ever got put in jail. There was nothing like that. That was just a blacklist for people who couldn't write for certain studios and things like that. It was nothing even remotely similar, and yet the left will drum that one into your head over and over again. Now, Liberal Fascism is definitely a book I would recommend you get. And I could easily spend the whole hour on some of the fascinating facts about fascism's greatest supporters, open supporters, you know, Benito Mussolini, Adolf Hitler, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, all people who consciously and openly supported fascist ideals. And this is important. They called them fascist ideals. It wasn't like, you know, fascism wasn't a bad word till Hitler came along, and, and that made people not realize what fascism was anymore because that was just one particular uh, variant of fascism that we saw in Europe. Most people don't realize that the Italian fascists uh, didn't go around exterminating their Jews. They actually protected them, so that wasn't even a necessary element of fascism per se. Uh, to, to those who say it can't happen here, says Goldberg, he simply replies, it already has. And I'll certainly refer to more of these particulars on future shows, and later again in this show, I'll refer to this book in the context of today's theme on environmentalism. 
which is a subject which, which, with which we will deal again on the other side of these dire predictions and desperate calls for urgent action by David Suzuki, as expressed in his interview with Chris St. Clair on the Weather Channel. We'll be back right after hearing from David. Now, I want to remind you that when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, the Americans didn't say, oh, that's a Republican problem or that's a Democratic problem. The Americans didn't say, we can't afford to do anything. They've destroyed the Pacific Fleet. It'll destroy the economy if we try to... No, there was only one thing you had to do, and Americans pulled together, and they worked as one country. What Paul Ehrlich at Stanford says is, we've got a thousand Pearl Harbors going off, an ecological Pearl Harbors going off. And what's needed is that response the sense of, yes, let's get going on this. We've all got to work together. And I'm always struck, you know, if you look at science fiction movies where a, a, an alien comes from outer space to destroy human beings, what's the first thing that happens? You see the President of the United States calling the President of, of uh, Russia and the Russians calling the Chinese. All human beings gather together and they work together to beat off this alien invader. We've now got the issue of climate change. It affects everyone, rich and poor. And we now have to marshal that sense of urgency to meet this all together. There's a huge ecological disaster when the permafrost starts to melt. Oh, this is the thing that I think the climatologists are terrified of because methane, which is frozen in the tundra, is 22 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. There are millions and millions and millions of tons of methane frozen under the permafrost. If, in fact, we begin to melt the permafrost, and it is melting, and liberate this, none of our computer models take into account what's called positive reinforcement, where you've got a trend going up like this. Methane kicks in, it's just going to kick the warming phase beyond anything our models predict. So that's, that's the real doomsday scenario. So it's interesting, isn't it? And there's a lot you can do. And I think the best way to think about it is if a million people all do little things, it adds up to something big. For more information, you can go to davidsuzuki.org. DavidSuzuki.org uh, as well. I think it would be well worth checking it out because so you can see what is, being, what is going on there. Of course, the basic message he's giving us is that no matter how bad it gets, it's going to be worse. And apocalypse, apocalypse, apocalypse. Real doomsday scenario. So, are you scared? Are you scared yet? Are you terrified? Uh, you know, last week I read a letter to the editor, to the Londoner here on the station, and interestingly enough, I think that letter kind of upset some of the people at at the Londoner. And one of them being none other than Gord Harrison himself, who responded to the letter with a heading called, It's a Scary Topic, but Climate Change is Indeed Happening, which appeared May 21st in the Londoner. Quote, in a letter in last week's Londoner, reader Peter Popper inferred he is one person who is wary of any claims Mr. Gore makes related to climate change because the movie was examined in a British court last fall and the judge in the matter found he couldn't agree with every detail. Of course, that movie being an inconvenient truth. 
And though Glenn Pearson said the vast majority of scientists, now more than 90%, concur with Mr. Gore's findings, that still leaves a small percentage of men and women who do not. Though that is somewhat unfortunate, he says, I am not all surprised. Climate change is a big, challenging, oftentimes politically charged and scary topic, end quote. Harrison then goes on to point out that the aforementioned uh, British judge basically accepted that many, quote, of the claims made in an inconvenient truth were scientifically supportable. The judge agreed that there are four scientific hypotheses in his film that accord with the latest conclusions of the inter intergovernmental panel on climate change. Well, no kidding. You think Gore's stuff isn't going to agree with the IPCC? And that the judge agreed that the climate change is all our fault attributable to man-made emissions of carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide, and that global temperatures are likely to rise, causing serious damage, quote, and that, quote, it is entirely possible for governments and individuals to reduce its impacts, end quote. Uh, though some detractors, write Harrison, uh, will want to make hay with a judge's criticisms concerning a few details in Mr. Gore's film, it is my hope that they will not disregard his conclusions, agree that man-made climate change is a bad thing, and find ways to support the governments and individuals who are doing something to slow or stop its effects, concludes Harrison. Well, first of all, we detractors are not detractors of anything. Most of us actually want to know and want to understand how climate change works, if indeed we're responsible. And many others actually do know or have a better understanding of how it does or doesn't work. And what we, quote, know, end quote, doesn't fit into the Al Gore religion of ecofascism, which is what I call it and which is what it is. You know, to comply with Harrison's viewpoint uh, that I have to agree that man-made climate change is a bad thing, you know, why would he ask me to agree? What do you think? People are going to give up what they believe and agree and put their beliefs aside, you know? And, and, um, uh, and you know, even though there are some details that are incorrect, forget about that. Just go with the conclusion because that's, that's that old conclusion. That's what's so important. And um, then there was a letter also appearing in the same issue of the Londoner, May 21st. And I want to really thank Doug Rogers for, for putting this letter in because it was under the heading, Oh, Don't Scare Us. And he writes, quote, Arguments to every one of Peter Popper's points can be found at How to Talk to a Climate Skeptic, which is available at http colon double slash gristmill.grist.org slash skeptics. And once you wade through the crumbling structure of logical fallacies Mr. Popper tosses in our torturous path to the end of his letter, we are left with one criticism. A tale of a British judge who, at the behest of a truck driver, decided that Al Gore's film, An Inconvenient Truth, was too scary for kids to see without a warning that the film was scary. Oh, don't scare us, please. End quote. And that's from Doug Rogers in London. Well, Doug, uh, you know, it's not the climate change that's scary to me. It's all you true believers out there that are a bit scary. And it's interesting how you all just love that word, don't you? Scary scary, scary. It's a scary topic, you know. But climate change is indeed happening, says Harrison. Too scary for kids. Oh, don't scare us, please, says Doug Rogers. Actually, I think what they're really saying is please do scare us because, you know, if you have to scare people to make your so-called logical and scientific arguments, then what does that tell me about the strength of those arguments? 
It strikes me that uh, a discovery made by one Albert Einstein was far more demonstrably impacting on mankind and mankind's future than anything the eco-fanatics have offered, even in their worst-case scenario. But could you picture Einstein trying to scare the scientific community, which at one time scoffed at a lot of his ideas, to get him to accept it, you know, instead of going out and proving it, instead of going out and doing the test of science? Uh, you know, in fact, in reality, it's rarely or never that an individual threatens the collective. It's usually the other way around, isn't it? From Galileo on down, the ideas and the discoveries of single individuals have always been suppressed by the collective, despite its claim of majority consensus. And, and you know, and that is scary. That's what's scary. I've heard nothing in the least bit scary about climate change. Ecofascism is scary. To think, you know, to think that they... They have the nerve to call or, or to talk logical fallacy when logic is even irrelevant to all climate change political arguments. They basically are arguing that knowledge is not possible. I'm going to get into some of these examples. I went to that website, by the way, Doug, and we're going to be dealing with that later after the break. But, uh, you know, when the entire movement, the whole ecological movement, is just drowning in mysticism and spiritualism and irrationality, and it's to a degree I, I can't really say I've ever seen within a single movement outside of a totally religious cult, you know, where you know, logic, science, and morality above all have just been tossed out the window. Last week you heard David Suzuki constantly repeat it, physical, social, spiritual, physical, social, spiritual. This is his religion, okay? And that's what it is. And you know who else said those words? Some of the world's most famous fascists, and I will leave them unmentioned because people will just say I'm trying to smear the guy. Yeah. The climate change uh, debate as such, you know, as it's been presented by the eco-fascist green movement, which is really red, by the way, and the only green involved is your money. Uh, it's really about politics and philosophy, and it's not about the environment. I mean, paying taxes for the right to pollute, even if that's how you look at carbon taxes, it's not going to do anything for the environment. You know, okay, so I'm polluting, I'm putting out CO2, now I give you my hundred bucks to do it, and uh, what has changed? You got a hundred bucks. I'm still polluting. Problem solved, and you're happy too. This is what, under, this is what kills me. Because <laughs> unless you're willing to stop the pollution instead of just taking money for it, of course, they're all talking, oh, this is the market, well, you know, they're giving us incentives. They figure if they rob enough of, of our money that we'll have an incentive. Well, I don't think that incentive is going to be what they expect, and that's how revolution starts. So they'd better be careful. Uh, you know, it's not going to do anything for the environment. It's it's insane. It's circular, based on so many logical fallacies. Last week I covered it, by the way. Only thing that I, I I couldn't do is I didn't have enough time to list all the logical fallacies and David Suzuki's tax and legislation legislation solutions to saving the planet. You know, talk about being out of touch with reality. I think if anyone's scared here, it's the greenies. One letter to the editor is all it takes for them to panic and respond, not by offering countering information or any examples, but by appealing to consensus, you know, a false one. Oh, well, 90%, that, that, that makes us right. And by appealing to the old age, you know, that age-old fascist trick of placing those who disagree with the majority in the denier category or some social outcast category. Oh, it's unfortunate that 10% disagree, says Harrison, like in some expectation that scientists who are devoted to the discipline of their profession and to the search for what is factual and true would somehow just join a majority and abandon their knowledge and, and expertise for polit political expediency. It's just amazing. And let us, let us not forget the right to disagree is a very fundamental thing to a free society. To, to, to say that it's unfortunate or a sad thing that people disagree 
is a non-issue. And normally, when people disagree, they go their separate ways. But uh, certainly not with uh, fascists. Fascists uh, don't believe that you can go your separate way. You've got to go their way. The politics of intimidation has become a science for the left. Um, you know, deal with people, not with ideas, because you can scare people, and you can especially scare children, as we saw last week on the show. But you cannot scare an idea, which is exactly why the left generally hates ideas and prefers to intimidate us with words like denier, scare, fear, apocalypse, and on and on. With an urgency of this nature, how dare anyone not rush into action, right? Without taking any time for thought. There's no time to think. Hurry, act, act, act. And that is the traditional and worldwide view of that's how fascism operated every single instance in its history. And, of course, what we're going to get out of all this, you know, you're going to get your brown shirt eco-troopers, people who are going to report on their neighbors who, you know, somebody sprayed their lawn, somebody put the tap on too long. Something like Jean Johnson in the London Free Press on May 20th who said she was shocked that the school is still using pesticides and talks about how on May 9th she walked across the field at uh, Medway High School to see that they had a warning pesticide use sign on the thing, on their lawn there. And she says, quote, This discovery was shocking at a time when the provincial government is working to implement a ban on these toxic and noxious chemicals on our public properties. Even more disturbing was watching several groups of students who also did not see the sign on the one edge of the field tumbling and running across the grass. I would have assumed the Thames Valley District School Board would have banned such spraying on school fields. The evidence of health hazards at this point is indisputable. Well, that's what she thinks. I can't exactly disagree, and you're going to hear a differing point of view right now as we take a break at this half hour, and we'll be back in about five or six minutes. See you on the other side of this. Now we go to myth number four. Chemicals are killing us. Of course, some chemicals in high enough doses do kill people. But in America today, there's this idea that quietly, secretly, everywhere, chemicals are gradually poisoning us. This song from 1989 sums it up. Americans' fear of chemicals has caused us to obsess about breathing. Dry cleaning, coffee, children's pajamas, chewing gum, saccharin, NutraSweet, food additives, even rubber duckies. There's no proof that the small amounts of the chemicals in those products have harmed anyone. The death rate from cancers has actually been declining in America. But our fear is contagious, and that can be deadly. We are losing between 2 million and 3 million people per year. The health minister of Uganda points out that these people may die because of the chemical DDT. But not because DDT is bad, but because Americans' fear of it has deprived much of the world of the chemical that might have saved them. How did this happen? Well, 50 years ago, Americans sprayed tons of DDT everywhere. Farmers used it to repel bugs and health officials to fight mosquitoes that carry malaria. Nobody worried much about chemicals then. People really did just sit there and eat in clouds of DDT. When the trucks came to spray, people often acted as if the ice cream truck had come. They were so happy to have mosquitoes repelled. Huge amounts of DDT were sprayed on food and people who just breathed it in. And amazingly, there's no evidence that all this spraying hurt people. It did cause some harm, however. It threatened bird populations by thinning their eggshells. And this book made the damage famous and helped create our fear of chemicals. But it's the dose that matters, because chemicals are everywhere. They're in vegetables, and vegetables are good for us. 
Did you know there's something in celery called 8-methoxysorolin that's carcinogenic in rodents? There's something in broccoli that's carcinogenic too, but it doesn't matter because it's the dose that makes the poison. Dose was the reason for the DDT problems. We sprayed so much. But it only takes this amount to prevent spread of malaria. It's sprayed on walls, and one spraying will keep mosquitoes at bay for half a year. It's a very efficient malaria fighter. But today, DDT is rarely used. America's demonization of it caused others to shun it. The U.S. government does spend your tax dollars fighting malaria in Africa, but it will not spend a penny on DDT. It is an extraordinarily delicate and political thing to use in another country, something we won't use in our own country. DDT was banned in America after we started celebrating Earth Day. Environmentalists made a lot of claims then. You are breathing probably the last of the oxygen. Soon after that came the campaign against DDT. The result? A huge resurgence of malaria. More than 50 million dead, mostly children. If it's a chemical, it must be bad. If it's DDT, it must be awful. And that's fine if you're a rich white environmentalist. It's not so fine if you're a poor black kid who's about to lose his life from malaria. Amir Adaran is leading a campaign of hundreds of scientists urging the use of DDT to combat malaria. It's needed especially in Africa, he says, because there malaria kills thousands every day. How many people do they want us to lose before we use DDT? The United States government fights malaria by funding drugs that the government's own website admits fail up to 80% of the time. And bed nets, though not everyone in Africa even has a bed. But we will not fund DDT. Even the USAID acknowledges it's safe to use. I would recommend that if those who want to use the indoor spraying, that they can and should. And it is definitely less harmful than dying and being exposed to malaria. But you won't pay for it? Currently, we don't pay for it. But this is pathetic. Millions of people are dying, and you, to be politically correct, are saying, oh, no, we don't want to pay for DDT. I believe that the strategies we are using are as effective as the spraying with DDT, and we are getting them out as far and as fast as we can. So politically correct or not, I am very confident that what we are doing is the right strategy. If I were to characterize what USAID does on malaria, I'd call it medical malpractice. I would call it murderous. Because of hysteria about chemicals in America, much of the world won't use DDT. And by the time this TV show is over, malaria will have killed another hundred children. And there is just one example of the smiley face of fascism, which in fact is the cover of the book of liberal fascism. You see a little yellow smiley face there because all these people who think they're doing so much good for the world while millions die under their noses are the direct consequences of what they're advocating, and they will not even look at it. Uh, you know, in his book, Liberal Fascism, which I talked about at the top of the show, Johann Goldberg quotes the reaction of the chief scientist for the Environmental Defense Fund, Charles Worcester, who, when told 
that banning DDT would probably result in millions of deaths, replied, now listen to this carefully, quote, this is as good a way to get rid of them as any, end quote. Hmm, fascism anyone? You know, like, and by the way, the Environmental Defense Fund invented the cap-and-trade system for cutting carbon emissions. Got that out of The Economist on May 17th. A guy named Fred Krupp runs the EDF, and he has a book out now called Earth the Sequel, The Race to Reinvent Energy and Stop Global Warming, uh, which got a really bad book review in The Economist, by the way. But there you have it, just a perfect example of how envirofascism is literally already destroying lives. 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to have a comment on this. And you're listening to CHRW just right from now until noon. Not much time left. Doug Rogers turned us on to this site here about how to talk to a global warming skeptic. And that's the name of the site at Gristmill. And, you know, as soon as I saw the title, I said, well, this is how cults approach their victims, you know. They, it's how you talk to them. It's not what you say. It's not uh, the argument itself. It's the method of how you approach somebody who is a skeptic, a non-believer. And that's how that whole site was based. You, you know, they had piles of, of supposed arguments. Okay, chaotic systems are not predictable. Climate is always changing. Climate models are unproven. CO2 doesn't lead, it lags. It was warmer during the Holocene climactic optimum. It's the sun, stupid. Uh, Kyoto is a big effort for almost nothing, and Mars and Pluto are warming too. Didn't hear about Pluto, but uh, natural emissions dwarf human emissions. The CO2 rise is natural. All of these arguments you've heard, possibly even me using here. So I picked a handful of them. There's no way to deal with all of them in the context of the time I've got here. But just to give you an example of the kind of thinking, uh, response to uh, objection, climate has always changed. Why are we worried now and why does it have to be humans' fault? Answer, says the website, yes, climate has varied in the past for many different reasons, some better understood than others. Present-day climate change is well understood and different. Noting that something happened before without humans does not demonstrate that humans are not causing it today. Well, there's that argument for you. That's kind of uh, a non-argument, and it only sticks to itself within a realm of epistemology. It doesn't relate to anything to reality. Okay, well, give us some of that evidence and give us the, the, the you know, connect the dots, how that gets back to us. Uh, climate models are unproven. You know, objection. Why should we trust a bunch of contrived computer models that have never had a prediction confirmed? Talk to me in a hundred years. Answer. Here's how you talk to the skeptic. Given the absence of a few duplicate planets and some large time machines, we can't test a hundred-year temperature projection. Does that mean the models can't be validated without waiting another hundred years? No. The climate is an extremely complex system. Our observations of it are by no means complete, even with regard to what's going on today. This is a shortcoming we need to work hard to protect, but it is also an opportunity for validating model predictions. In other words, they don't know anything. They're using this whole thing as an experiment to find out, you know, if it actually does work after the fact. That's what uh, fascists have done in the past, experiment with their populations. Uh, eugenics, anyone, that kind of stuff. It's a different thing if it were voluntary, but this isn't. Here's one I always use, you know, the, the sun is the source of warmth on Earth. Any increase in temperature is likely due to changes in solar radiation. Answer, it's true that the Earth is warmed for all practical purposes entirely by solar radiation. So if the temperature is going up or down, the sun is, is a reasonable place to seek the cause. 
but it turns out it's more complicated than one might think to detect and measure changes in the amount or type of sunshine reading the Earth. Detectors on the ground are susceptible to all kinds of interference from the atmosphere. After all, one cloud passing overhead can cause a shiver on an otherwise warm day, etc., etc. I couldn't even... Doug, how can you read this stuff? I just... I look at this stuff, and I, and I go, how can anybody take this stuff seriously? Here's one. Kyoto is a big effort for almost nothing, okay? Even if fully implemented, it would only save us about a tenth of a degree of future temperature rise many decades from now. What a waste of effort you can see for yourself here at Junk Science. Answer, he says. Well, there are three big problems with this claim. One, it's a red herring. Two, Kyoto is a step-by-step -step process. And third, I like this one, the temperature several decades from now is to a large extent already determined by the current energy imbalance thanks to extra CO2 already in the atmosphere. Short of a complete cessation of emissions today, there is no foreseeable way to avoid the bulk of the warming in the pipeline. This is mostly due to the external thermal inertia of the oceans and therefore the climate system as a whole. It means that our actions today, or our inaction, will have consequences several decades hence. And this is outrageous. I kind of reminded of reading a horoscope, you know, where they give you a very generic piece of advice and they deliver it in the context of an astrological star chart, palm reading or something like that. And that's how th these people are getting their knowledge. You know, here's one. Mars and Pluto are warming too. And, uh, you know, since there's no SUVs on Mars, CO2 can't be the cause of global warming. Answer. Warming on another planet would be an interesting coincidence, but it would not necessarily be driven by the same causes. Hmm, okay, it's a coincidence. <laughs> isn't everything else you're talking about a coincidence? I don't see the science in this. There just isn't any. And we'll get, be getting to that, too. And uh, then it says the scientists aren't sure, you know, and then their answer is, oh, probability is a language of science. There is no proof. There are no absolute certainties. In other words, what this whole site argues is that knowledge is not possible. Therefore, please accept everything we say on faith. Every single question on that site was that. I was embarrassed for the people who are recommending to go see that. This is not for people who want to know anything about uh, global warming. But let's hear it from the horse's mouth himself. Right after this, you're going to hear from Al Gore right now and telling you why we have to follow him as the leader. That brings up the basic science of global warming, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because uh, you know it well. The sun's radiation comes in in the form of light waves, and that heats up the Earth. And then some of the radiation that is absorbed and warms the Earth is re-radiated back into space in the form of infrared radiation. And some of the outgoing infrared radiation is trapped by this layer of atmosphere and held inside the atmosphere. And that's a good thing because it keeps the temperature of the Earth within certain boundaries, keeps it relatively constant and livable. But the problem is this thin layer of atmosphere is being thickened by all of the global warming pollution that's being put up there. And what that does is it thickens this layer of atmosphere. More of the outgoing infrared is trapped. And so the atmosphere heats up worldwide. That's global warming. Now, that's the traditional explanation. Here's a, what I think is a better explanation. Global warming, or... None like it hot! <laughs> You're probably wondering why your ice cream went away. Well, Susie, the culprit isn't foreigners, 
It's global warming. Global wapu? Yeah. Meet Mr. Sunbeam. He comes all the way from the sun to visit Earth. Hello, Earth. Just popping in to brighten your day. La 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 la. And now, I'll be on my way. Not so fast, Sunbeam. We're greenhouse gases. You ain't going nowhere. Oh! Ah! Oh! Ah! Oh! Oh, God, it hurts! Pretty soon, Earth is chock full of sunbeams. They're rotting corpses heating our atmosphere. <laughs> How do we get rid of the greenhouse gases? Fortunately, our handsomest politicians came up with a cheap, last-minute way to combat global warming. Ever since 2063, we simply drop a giant ice cube into the ocean every now and then. Just like Daddy puts in his drink every morning. And then he gets mad. Of course, since the greenhouse gases are still building up, it takes more and more ice each time. Thus, solving the problem once and for all. But... Once and for all! I used to be the next president of the United States of America. I don't find that particularly funny. Welcome back to the show. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW. 519-661-36 number is the number you can call to join us, and that's exactly what Dirks did this morning. Uh, or is he still there? Has he gone? Did he hang up there, Taff? He did, did he? Okay, we lost our caller. He was just calling in there, I guess. Maybe he heard something he didn't want to address or something like that. I don't know. But uh, there you just heard Al Gore. Basically, uh, the sun visits Earth. Greenhouse gases beat up a sunbeam to the point where it hurts. Their rotting corpses of sunbeams heat our atmosphere, and our politicians fixed it. There's a basic message of the whole thing about an inconvenient truth. Uh, I watched the movie. I've watched it twice. I watched it originally for this show, way back on the third show, which you can see in my comments on it, and I think I said something like it was a bit like watching a fundamentalist prayer meeting on Sunday morning uh, faith healers. And it's interesting because... Uh, uh, I'm just looking at the clock here. I've only got about seven minutes, and one of the stories that I have to maybe put off till next week is the one about the Oregon petition. You know, all this claim about... Um, the global warming people having the majority of scientists on side is just a complete fabrication. It's such a fabrication, it's bigger than the big lie, because the, the extreme difference between the number of scientists opposed to Kyoto and the ones in favor is so great. You're talking like, you know, 32,000 right now to maybe 2,000 kind of thing. But to suggest, uh, you know, I saw, uh, uh, oh man, this eco-theology, heard about this? Science and religion say I do in, uh, in the Green Planet column by Vivian Song in London Free Press, May 18th. And uh, this basically just says so much. You know, quote, what used to be considered a fringe movement has become a serious scholarly field of study, said Dennis O'Hara, 
a director of the Elliott Allen Institute for Theology and Ecology at the University of Toronto. In 1991, U of T St. Michael's College became the first in North America to offer a doctoral degree in eco-theology. Since then, interest in the subject has grown so much that it's now taught at 25 colleges and universities in Canada alone. Eco-theology is a branch of theology that explores the connection between God and his creation, O'Hara explains. Last year, the Vatican hosted a climate change conference and called environmental abuse tantamount to sinning. There's that moral imperative again. Meanwhile, evangelical leaders in the U.S. teamed up with a coalition of scientists issuing Washington, uh, uh, urging Washington, Washington rather, to er have an urgent call to action, which we just heard again David Suzuki calling for. At a time when church attendance is on the decline, especially among younger generations, the environment has been described as the new religion. It fills a human need for the metaphysical, experts say. <laughs> but there, that's an expert using the word metaphysical like that. I guarantee you, he's not an expert. He doesn't even know what the word metaphysical means. Uh, Al Gore, quote, is often described as the modern-day prophet of revelations for an inconvenient truth. He's both vilified and defied, and has called it a moral imperative to fight global warming. Likewise, eco-theology calls planetary stewardship a Christian responsibility. Ultimately, the question of global warming is a moral question. Hello, what have I been saying since for a year now? Says Mishka Lysak, an ordained Anglican priest and co-chair of curriculum and research at the University of Calgary's Office of Sustainability. What is our priority? To serve our own needs and to place at risk future generations, he asks. God communicates to mankind through nature, O'Hara adds. Destroying creation would be silencing the voice of God, which is a preposterous thought. And I think it is a preposterous thought because you cannot possibly destroy creation. But of course, all production is destructive to something in nature, isn't it? Because what you're doing is changing and the form of one thing into another. And that entails, creation entails destruction. It's par part and parcel of the same process. What environmentalists oppose is creation by mankind because it's, a, it's an anti-human movement to begin with. And uh, you, you haven't heard the last of this. I haven't even got to some of, some of the good stuff yet. But to call this a scientific movement, to call it a legitimate political movement, I don't think you can do that. I think uh, the evidence is overwhelming, and I will keep presenting it for you on this show, that basically uh, everything to do with environmentalism is all about a political system. It's capitalism versus socialism, as has been the case all the time. So I think I'm going to leave it with at that point. Are we okay for that now, Taff? We got to, how are we doing for time there? Just about out? I think we'll leave it there, and we'll come back next week when we ta tell you a little bit more about Lawrence Solomon's uh, National Post article and what is going on with scientists and how they are beginning to react to this whole situation. So, until next week, I hope you'll join us again. Until then, think right, act right, do right, stay right, and take care. Fade into color Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright One time a guy handed me a picture of me He said, here's a picture of me when I was younger Every picture is of you when you were younger <laughs> ain't, that, ain't, that, ain't that about time someone said that? <laughs> <laughs>